Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin and go to Georgia, where important primary elections today will determine how much Trump's big lie that is underpinning the MAGA takeover of the Republican Party is on a roll or is encountering a speed bump. Joining us is Jared Yates Sexton, a professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern University and the author of The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. His political writing has appeared in publications including The New York Times, The New Republic, Politico and Salon.com, and his latest book is American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People. He also has a forthcoming book out soon, The Midnight Kingdom, a history of power, paranoia, and the coming crisis. And we will discuss his article at jaredyatesexton.substack.com. This is going to get really ugly really soon. Tucker Carlson and the right have created imaginary rivals in order to legitimize their anti-democratic actions. Then, with a CNN poll last week finding that only 10% of Americans feel optimistic about the way things are going in America, while 65% are concerned and 21% are downright scared, we will explore how to stop the contagion of pessimism, since authoritarianism is a system of governance that revolves around defeating hope. Joining us is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, an historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection and propaganda. She is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, the recipient of the Guggenheim Fulbright and other fellowships, and an advisor to protect democracy. She is also an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and the Washington Post, and provides live commentary on CNN, MSNBC and other networks. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, and she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy, where her latest article is Hope, the Secret Weapon of Democracy Protection. Then finally, we'll look into what, apart from the fossil fuel lobby and Senator Joe Manchin, is threatening the urgent transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy, and that is the price and availability of solar panels. Joining us is Mark Wolf, an energy economist who serves as the executive director of the National Energy Assistant Directors Association, representing the state directors of the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. He specializes in energy, climate, housing, and related consumer finance issues, and we will discuss his article at CNN, The U.S. Solar Panel Industry is on the Verge of Collapsing. Here's how to prevent it. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Jared Yates Sexton, a professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern University and the author of The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. His political writing has appeared in publications including The New York Times, The New Republic, Politico and Salon.com. And his latest book is American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People. 
He also has a forthcoming book out soon, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. And he has an article at jaredyatesexton.substack.com. This is going to get really ugly really soon. Tucker Carlson and the right have created imaginary rivals in order to legitimize their anti-democratic actions. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jared Yates Sexton. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Jared. And uh, in your state of Georgia, of course, there's an important primary elections today. And obviously the results won't be in for a while. But it does seem that Governor Kemp is going to overcome the challenge from David Perdue, uh, who's Trump's anointed challenger. And it's not entirely clear whether Trump's other anointed challenger in the more important race, arguably, that is for the Secretary of State, since that's what the Republicans are targeting, the Secretaries of State, so that they can literally count the votes and decide for themselves that they won. Jody Heiss is competing against the incumbent Raffensperger, who was the man who stood up to Trump when he asked for to, for him to find an extra 11,870 votes. So you're there on the ground. Am I right in suggesting that it's not going to be much of a surprise in terms of the race between the Governor Kemp and, and Purdue, but the Secretary of State's race is not quite as uh, clear? Yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, what's happened in the gubernatorial race is that David Perdue has basically put all of the joy into this race that somebody does with a part-time job. Um, he, he is not really campaigned. He hasn't really done much. And meanwhile, Kemp has maintained a stranglehold on the uh, the Republican establishment in the state of Georgia. The Secretary of State, it feels like Raffensperger, probably will lose except for the possibility that he could pull this out because – not only did he stand up for Don, stand up against Donald Trump in 2020, but he's actually weirdly enough courted Trump voters since then. So there's still a possibility he pulls this out, but we might very well be looking at a Georgia in the near future where one party controls not just the apparatus of state, but also how these elections are handled. And it seems like it is moving in the direction because it is a purple state that that control will determine a lot going forward. And in terms of the Senate race, where you've got the senator who uh, won in the recent by-election, he's only served very shortly, Raphael Warnock, it looks like the Republicans very cynically and cleverly chose an African-American football star, right, to run against him. That's correct. Herschel Walker is probably one of the most famous Georgians uh, in, in modern history. Uh, not a good candidate, has literally no idea what he's doing, uh, and, and has a really, really troubling past, but has been put up particularly by Donald Trump into running against Raphael Warnock. Um, and it appears that that Herschel Walker will be the candidate. But this is a um, this is a rambling uh, mess of a campaign. And still, again, going back to what I was saying about the future of the state, um, still has a possibility of unseating Warnock in November. So let's turn to the article that you wrote, uh, Jared. This is going to get really ugly really soon. It is ugly. And the ugly part of it is that the entire resurgence of uh, Donald Trump is based on a lie that he manufactured and was able to, in spite of the fact that shortly after January the 6th, we are now learning that 
McConnell and McCarthy and the top Republicans were ready to get rid of the guy. But somehow he was able to fight back by creating this lie that he won an election that he clearly lost. And his own people said that he'd lost it. And then he, he is, has doggedly stuck to this lie, and it's metastasized now into the orthodoxy of the Republican Party. Eighty percent of the Republicans believe that Trump won the, the last election. So we're in a situation where we're not up against a big lie. We're up against the defiance of reality itself. So welcome to Post-Truth America. No, that's exactly right. And one of the things that's happened here, and I, I think a lot of people look at Donald Trump as if, uh, you know, somehow or another the poison originates with him or that he is the disease. Um, it's actually a symptom of a larger Republican trend that has taken place over the last few years. And one of the things that we found is that Donald Trump's sense of shamelessness, the ability to lie about the outcome of an election, the ability to use these conspiracy theories um, basically to his own aggrandizement, uh, has been co-opted by a Republican Party that recognizes that the institutions in the United States are very, very weak and that they are able to use this distrust and this disinformation and misinformation to their own purposes. So what we have seen grow up around the disastrous, not just Trump presidency, but Trump campaign and Trump uh, post-reality, is we have seen a Republican Party now that is very interested in rolling back the progress of the 20th century. We've seen that now, of course, with uh, what looks to be the inevitable overturning of Roe v. Wade, but also the possibility of losing gay marriage, labor rights, uh, any types of other uh, progress you can really imagine. This has all been part of a larger project that recognized that Donald Trump exposed a weakness or a rot in the system. And now you have a lot of people who are using that rot or that exposure uh, for their own purposes. So... Let's talk a little about, which you cover in your article as well, about the CPAC conference that's taken place in Hungary, where they've been hosted by the Hungarian role model for American conservatives, Viktor Orban, Putin's buddy, the spoiler. And Donald Trump spoke to CPAC via a video link, and shortly thereafter, a Hungarian racist named Jolt Bayer made a speech, and he's in the past have called Jews stinking excrement, and he's referred to the Roma as animals, and had some really disgusting epithets also for black people. There was also a, a young right-wing American, Gavin Wax, president of the New York uh, Young Republicans Club, and he also spoke, and he said that, quote, I'll just quote him, sooner Rather than later, Americans will follow the Hungarian standard forward. The Prime Minister has provided us with a roadmap to follow, and we will fearlessly achieve those same goals on our shores. We will establish a form of conservatism that sees the media as the enemy and actually conserves what we hold near and dear. Our national renewals will be preceded by an historic rebuking of not just the soulless Marxist elites on the left, but also the greedy, bloodthirsty neoconservatives and neoliberals on the right. They will be exposed, demonized, and crushed beneath the waves of a rising tide of populism. So uh, these guys are on a roll, right? 
And where's the countervailing energy, do you think? I mean, that scares the hell out of me, frankly. Well, I mean, I, I, I hate to be the, the person saying this, but it should scare the hell out of you. I mean, what, what we're looking at right now is the fact that on the so-called left with the Democratic Party and also with the Republican Party, there's not necessarily a lot of energy or momentum. Um, the projects that they've carried out, particularly neoliberalism, has sort of reached a little bit of, uh, of an empty. The tank's a little bit empty right now. And the only alternative uh, that is taking place is being spoken by this group that is now calling themselves national conservatives. And they have been spending the past few years under the tutelage of people like Viktor Orban. And if listeners aren't aware of what Orban has done in Hungary, this is a figure who has absolutely domina dominated the political and socioeconomic landscape in Hungary. Uh, and, and once he got in power, he was able to basically rig every election, take over the media, take over the schools, and, and turn this into an authoritarian state. And the flirtation between Orban and these national conservatives and one of the uh, highest rated, probably the highest rated show in cable news right now, Tucker Carlson, uh, is is a, an advocate of these ideas. And the entire idea behind it that Orban has told them is to get rid of liberal democracy and replace it with illiberalism or what he calls Christian democracy, which would be a country that is uh, basically completely tuned to the wishes and destinies of white, wealthy evangelicals. And this is the project that they're currently carrying out. And like you said, that this is where the momentum is. And there isn't particularly any energy on the left or the right or even really a willingness to admit that this is happening right now. But unfortunately, it's happening right out in the open, and it is an international movement. So basically, we're in Germany in the 1930s, right? Well, part of the problem with this is that in these moments where liberal democracy starts to fail, you know, when it doesn't serve uh, the, the destinies of the people, eventually a new narrative or a new mythology or a new energy will rise up to try and galvanize them. And you're exactly right. In 1930s Germany, you had a moment where people lost all respect for the institutions. They lost any uh, belief in the established parties and, and movements. And eventually you have someone come along who sanctifies it. They talk about, you know, the, the religious religious energy of the time and destinies and such. And national conservatism really does smell and look and feel a lot like what we saw in past uh, reactionary movements, including fascistic Italy and Nazi Germany. So there are a lot of um, a, a lot of relationships and a lot of echoes that are taking place here that definitely harken back to the 1930s. So what is going to wake up the Democrats and wake up, it's not just the Democrats, independents and, and your grandfathers and fathers Republicans. I mean, democracy itself is at stake. They are literally rigging it so that we can have a one-party state in this country like Orban has created in Hungary. Yeah, with the Republican Party, unfortunately, uh, you don't have to look back in the past very far to understand what they're going to do. In 2010, whenever you have the AstroTurf Tea Party movement, they recognized that it might actually threaten them as a political party, and they absorbed it. They made that orthodoxy in the same way the GOP has now made QAnon the orthodoxy or Trumpism the orthodoxy, and now it will make national conservatism the orthodoxy. In terms of the Democratic Party, 
That's a broader, uh, more important question in all of this, because as of right now, the Democratic Party does not seem interested in diagnosing this or even admitting that something is happening here. I think a lot of leadership looks at the GOP and this movement and thinks that eventually they'll wake up or maybe the fever will break, to borrow a phrase from President Joe Biden. Uh, but I have to tell you that I, I really think the future and a lot of our destinies and a lot of our fates really relies on some of these people recognizing what the problem is and calling it out for what it is. Just here in the last uh, minute or so, let me just add, and it's an unfortunate piece of news that's just coming in, that 14 children and one teacher were killed in a shooting at a Texas elementary school. So this is also the America that we know so well. And this is just another part of the madness along with the political madness that we're talking about. So just in closing, Jared Yates Sexton, again, what's going to stop this? Because 240 years of American democracy at stake and we are sleepwalking off a cliff here if we don't do something about it. Well, I'll say in, in terms of this tragedy, um, it is just yet another symptom of a culture that is not just in decline, but is engaged in incredible, uh, disturbing self-destruction. I think eventually there will come a point in which the people will recognize that something is happening and something is brewing. But the question is whether or not that will happen in time. And, and one of the things that we have to do is we have to start building a resistance to this thing and an alternative to it. Well, Jared Yates Sexton, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jared Yates Sexton, who's a professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern University and the author of The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. His political writing has appeared in publications, including The New York Times, The New Republic, Politico, and Salon.com. And his latest book is American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People. And he also has a forthcoming book out soon, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. And he has an article, jaredyatesexton.substack.com. This is going to get really ugly really soon. Tucker Carlson and the right have created imaginary rivals in order to legitimize their anti-democratic actions. We're going to take a brief station break and back exploring ways to stop the contagion of pessimism since authoritarianism is a system of governance that revolves around defeating hope. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who's an historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection, and propaganda. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, the recipient of Guggenheim Fulbright and other fellowships, and an advisor to Project Democracy. She's also an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN, and the Washington Post, and provides live commentary on CNN and MSNBC and other networks. And her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, and she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy, where her latest article is Hope, the Secret Weapon of Democracy Protection. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Ruth Ben-Giat. Thank you. And as your article at Lucid points out, Ruth, a CNN poll of a 1,000 adults last week showed that only 10% of Americans feel optimistic about the way things are going in America, while 65% are concerned and 21% are downright scared. And you go on to say the pessimism can be contagious and that authoritarianism is a system of governance that revolves around defeating hope. So in this current dismal political environment, how do you weaponize hope? Well, I think um, part of you know having hope is being part of a like-minded community and um, being discerning about the media that you consume because um, much of right-wing media in the U.S. is designed to make you feel angry or uh, hopeless or aggrieved. So it traffics in these negative emotions and uh, that those emotions are not conducive to hope. And the point of those emotions is to make people feel um, that uh, they you know, just negative emotions. Um, so that's, that's, you know, part of it. I also think that um, it's very important not to um, believe that what you do doesn't matter and to give it, to, to not give way to fatalism, um, to think that, oh, this is just overwhelming, no matter, even if I vote, my vote's not going to count anymore, because that's exactly what um, extremists and authoritarians want you to believe. Well, given the vote rigging that's going on and the targeting of Secretary of State offices by Trump and his cadre who who believe in in the big lie, the stop the steal, um, and we'll see what happens, obviously, in Georgia today, but just recently in Pennsylvania, he's not even a, a, an election denier. He's an absolute crackpot, full-on election denier in the form of Rudy Giuliani and company, who who conducted a, a completely bogus forum down there and trying to overturn Biden's victory in Pennsylvania. And he, if he's elected, uh, he gets to choose who the Secretary of State is. So there's clearly an environment out there where the vote is rigged and the playing field is stacked against us. So how do you enter a race when it's stacked against you? How do you enter a casino where there's no chance of winning? Well, it obviously becomes much more challenging. And uh, often in, in, in real autocracies like Viktor Orban's Hungary, this kind of, um, which is called an electoral autocracy, because you have elections today, you don't shut elections down, you just game the system uh, so that often, but not always, often it produces the results you need. But those tools are used together with media domination um, so that the opposition politicians simply can't, their messages don't reach the voters as much as uh, the authoritarian in charge. Um, so, but in, in our country, we have a very particular situation because 
we had a record voter turnout for Joe Biden. We had over 80 million people turn out. And this was in part fueled by the Black Lives Matter protests. But we also had close to the same number of Americans who didn't vote, a, a staggering number. Uh, uh, again, another 80 million Americans didn't vote at all. So I've been saying that these are the people who we have to reach and let them know that their vote matters, because I believe you should never um, be, think that your vote won't matter because then the game is over before it starts. And many people didn't expect that Donald Trump would be voted out. They thought he was too strong, too, too dominant. And uh, then there was a surprise. Right, but this time he learned from his earlier mistakes and he's determined to rig a system where it doesn't matter what the vote is uh, in 2024, he will win and the trial run will be in 2022. And for some reason or other, the Democratic Party does not want to make this the central issue of their campaign in uh, this year, that this is really about the preservation of democracy itself. And I imagine that the only way to, to start a movement that focused on that singular goal, because as I was saying earlier, I don't see why you would enter a race that's rigged against you, it has to involve independence and has to obviously attract the 80 million people that you're talking about. And also it has to attract uh, traditional non-MAGA Republicans. So mm -hmm. is that the central challenge? At least it seems that way to me, Ruth. Yeah, it is. The, that is the central challenge. And I think that um, I don't agree with democratic strategy in uh, not may, not being more vociferous uh, about um, the, 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 the threats to our democracy. And I'm a big fan of uh, President Biden. But because he ran as a unifier, he's been much more um, outspoken against Vladimir Putin and the threats to democracy abroad and America as a beacon of democracy abroad than he has been until now, um, calling out very clearly the threats in our country. So that, that should change um, for sure. But the thing is, you can't, you can't vacate the battlefield uh, or else you really have lost the war. And, and, just as um, the Republicans have learned from the 2020 defeat and the whole period after 2020 until uh, Biden's inauguration, when they were trying all these strategies to keep Trump in power through kind of coup um, or military, you know, martial law, they were trying everything. So can the Democrats learn, even if they are... Um, in highly challenging situations with, um, as in Pennsylvania, it looks like they will be, they have to experiment new strategies, legal ones, because we're not like the Republicans. Um, they have to experiment with new strategies to stay on the battlefield because you can't abdicate your place in democracy because then you've given up and you lose your freedoms. So there's no tactic then similar to what happened down in Texas with an authoritarian Republican Party down there, that the Democrats sort of left the state so that they couldn't have a quorum. There's no practical way that the Democrats could say 
in this upcoming election, look, this is so badly rigged against us because of, uh, of Trump and the Republicans are abs- absolutely determined to create a one-party state and they don't give a damn about democracy and this is a complete sham and therefore we're not going to participate. That, that, that wouldn't work, but is there an, some kind of equivalent of not allowing a quorum? Is there any way that you can put a stop to this? Because obviously the idea that complaining, that if the Democrats complain, it looks as if they're just weak, when in fact you've got to come in from a position of strength saying that you are defending what America stood for for the last 240 years. Yeah, so the, again, the messaging has to change. The tactics have to change. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's very interesting um, in Italy, where the first dictatorship was created from a democracy, the opposition at a very crucial, crucial moment, right when Mussolini had first declared dictatorship, but he hadn't passed any of the laws that banned opposition parties or anything yet. There was a window. And the opposition in parliament, the non-fascists, decided to do the noble gesture and they abdicated. They they literally left the parliament and they went and they, they met on the Aventine Hill, a kind of noble gesture of opposition to leave this tainted parliament. And it turns out that was a mistake because when they wanted to get back in, the black shirts just stationed all their thugs, their fascist thugs there, and those lawmakers never did get back into the parliament ever again. Um, well, so much for my idea. Then. <laughs> <laughs> but why is it that you have a very conservative Republican judge like Judge Ludic writing an extremely cogent essay laying out all the details of what the Republicans are up to. And it is literally Orban, the American Orban project, one-party state, as clear as day that this is what they're doing. And you can see the mechanics of it are underway. And they've already got their people in Michigan now, election denier, another one of these stop-to-steal lunatics. And if the guy in... uh, Pennsylvania wins, uh, then they've got that one sewn up. They're working on Arizona, and we'll see what happens in Georgia tonight. Yeah, no, there's no question. I'm the last person to be uh, Pollyannish. And indeed, uh, one of the big picture things I've been tracking is uh, when you are remaking a political party to support autocracy and you're leaving democracy, you need to... um, renew the ranks uh, and have new kinds of people come into your party who are going to be suitable for autocracy. And that usually includes uh, criminals, unscrupulous people, extremists. And so that's what's been happening. Uh, The the types of people, including dozens of January 6 participants, including people who breached the Capitol, they've been encouraged, often endorsed by Trump, to run for office. So one of the big stories we're seeing is the Republican Party remaking itself as a party of extremists and people with criminal records. Um, And so, of course, that's discouraging. But I wrote the essay about hope because um, I study places where democracy has more or less vanished, where it's highly challenged. And hope is not just a kind of 
idealistic um, emotion or feeling that you sit at home and hope that things will go well. It's been shown to be a kind of part of a sound political strategy at resisting authoritarianisms. And our job, we're, we still have a democracy and we have to protect what we have. We have to act so we don't lose our rights. And unfortunately, many times uh, people get it together uh, only when the rights are already gone. Well, if you've got Fox News on the right pushing all of this horrible stuff and clearly the Murdoch family just cares more about profit than they do about social responsibility, particularly when it comes to encouraging racist mass murder, which is what we just witnessed in Buffalo, thanks to Tucker Carlson. So it's all very, very clear that who the bad guys are in the media space, but they're still quite a big chunk of the media space that's uh, not as toxic and as anti-democratic as Fox is. Can that be focused in any way? All this sort of, on the one hand, on the other hand, binary convention in the media, where you, if you interview a Republican, you have to interview a Democrat. Can they get rid of that and just make the threat to democracy itself in America, which is a clear and present danger, the focus of, of their reporting in this election year, as opposed to the process and having these people up before the boards and and nitpicking and giving you all kinds of esoteric details about this precinct and that precinct, where you get into the weeds, but you don't pull back and tell the real picture is, this is a battle for American democracy itself. Yeah, that's that's what needs to be done. And those, it's very... Um important that those legacy networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, they are watched by a lot of independent voters. They're watched by a lot of people who uh, don't maybe want to watch Fox, and they also don't want to watch MSNBC. And those are the networks that really uh, need to have people like me on. But I'm not asked, for, as an example, I'm not asked to be on those networks because they don't have uh, so much coverage of threats to democracy. I'm asked, um, I'm, I'm on uh, several times a week at this point, MSNBC, because they privileged the story of the threat to democracy. And so to reach these voters uh, who are centrists or independents, which is what I firmly think we need to do, those networks are invaluable. They're like the central ground. And uh, like a lot of the rest of the media, they're not stepping up uh, adequately to cover the story. But they recognize that this whole movement to turn America into a one-party state controlled by the Trump's GOP is based on this massive lie that Trump launched. I mean, shortly after January 6th, he was in trouble, and, and McCarthy and McConnell and others were think, trying to figure out how to get rid of him. And then, for some reason or other, this guy was able to hang on and float this lie that he had actually won an election that he clearly lost, that even his own Republican election officials, including the Attorney General, Bill Barr, said it was, a, it was the most cleanest election we've ever had, and you lost. He somehow was able to just push ahead with this lie that black is white, up is down, and he won, and Biden lost, and yet 
So Biden's an imposter. So the amazing thing is, Ruth, that this Stop the Steal Live floated by this one guy who's so psychologically damaged by his father that he can't accept defeat and be a loser. He projected his own lie onto the country and onto the Republican Party, and it metastasized to the point now where 80% of Republicans believe it. So it's not just that democracy itself is under threat in this country. Reality itself is also under threat. Yeah, we've had a big, this is exactly the kind of authoritarian dynamic uh, and the corrosiveness of personality cults um, that I've written about uh, in my book that goes back to 100 years, where one person, it's a very self-serving lie that he told, because strongmen, they they simply can't leave office. Uh, and I predicted that Trump would not leave office because that they they can't admit defeat. So they do all kinds of illegal things to stay there. And, and I didn't know what form it would take, but I did know that he wasn't going to leave quietly. And so because he had already put the GOP uh, under his thumb with a true authoritarian domination, uh, he was able to get them to uh, see his interests as their own to the point where uh, now all these stories come out of the leaked text messages, this flurry of activity on behalf of the leader by senators and and. Mark Meadows and all these people, and many of them are now in Orban's Hungary at a conference learning more about how to do this. Um, but it's quite extraordinary, but it's it, the dynamics of uh, this kind of cult worship and leader worship are, are not new. They're just, Trump brought them to the United States and we're seeing all of the destruction that they cause. Well, Ruth ben I thank you so much for joining us here and I appreciate the idea that we are not hopeless and helpless in the face of all this bad news and that defeat is not inevitable and that we can actually turn this thing around. And thank you. Sure, anytime. And again, I've been speaking with Ruth Ben-Gad, who's a historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection and propaganda. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and a recipient of the Guggenheim Fulbright and other fellowships and an advisor to Project Democracy. She's also an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and the Washington Post and provides live commentary on CNN, MSNBC and other networks. And her latest book is Strongman, Mussolini to the Present. And she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy where her latest article is Hope the secret weapon of democracy protection. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into what, apart from the fossil fuel lobby and Senator Joe Manchin, is threatening the urgent transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy, and that is the price and availability of solar panels. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mark Wolf, an energy economist who serves as the executive director of the National Energy Assistance Directors Association, representing the state directors of the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. He specializes in energy, climate, housing, and related consumer finance issues and has an article at CNN, The U.S. Solar Panel Industry is on the Verge of Collapsing. Here's how to prevent it. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mark Wolf. Thank you for inviting me. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, there's a struggle underway. President Biden wanted to make investments in green energy and solar and wind, and he was largely held up or even sabotaged by his own caucus with Joe Manchin, uh, etc. So Build Back Better is not happening in the way that Biden uh, hoped for, and now he's got a war. And there's a war in Ukraine in which Russia's attacked Ukraine, driven up the price of energy. Now the, the focus is not on green or on an alternative energy, but the focus is on finding more and more oil and gas. So it's not exactly the best environment we're in now for alternative energy. But then on top of that, you're telling us that the solar panel, which are a vital component in solar energy, there may be, what, a complete cutoff or a huge spike in their costs. So just tell us exactly what's going to happen here in terms of your concern, as you've expressed in your article at CNN, that the U.S. solar panel industry is on the verge of collapsing. Yeah, this um, goes back to March. Um, a small company in California went to the Department of Commerce and said that China was uh, undercutting the market. And so the Department of Commerce opened an investigation. And if the Department of Commerce finds in favor of Axum, uh, that's the name of the company in uh, California, then all solar panels imported into the United States after March could be subject to retroactive tariffs. So if you're an installer, you're very reluctant to order new panels because you don't really know what the final cost is going to be. And if the tariff is high enough, you could lose money. So that's causing a, a stoppage of a lot of projects in the United States. And all that also reflects another problem. And the real problem is this. Solar energy has significant potential to address climate change in the United States. It's the fastest growing energy source. But the problem is that in the last 10 years, we've become increasingly dependent on imports to China. Now, China doesn't directly export to us anymore. It goes through four Southeastern Asian countries. And what the charge has been is that China has been selling their components through those countries in order to avoid our tariff system. That is a core problem. But it also highlights, I think, a much bigger problem that if we're going to grow clean energy in the United States, we have to support a more diversified distribution network, a more diversified production network. And the way to do that is to build solar panels in the United States. And that's what the article is about, that we become very, very dependent on a country like China and the other countries they export through during a period of very significant supply chain problems. So even if commerce finds that the case, say, for example, has no merit, we still have the problem of shipping delays, tariffs, a lockdown in China right now because of COVID, in addition to the normal supply chain problems, fire, earthquakes, those sorts of things. So what I'm concerned about is that we can see a source that has enormous potential to help the United States move away from fossil fuels, but very little domestic manufacturing capacity. So that was the thing that I was trying to point out, that it's a very vulnerable system, and it's been that way for some time. So the problem is that 80% of 
solar panels installed in the United States are imported from Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam, and that they have Chinese components in this that are subject to U.S. tariffs. And that's the basis of this uh, lawsuit before the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce. And if the lawsuit finds that these companies in Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam have to retroactively be charged tariffs, then the prices will go up. So what happened to the U.S. solar panel industry? I mean, there, there was, of course, the famous case of Solyndra during the Obama mm-hmm. years that got a lot of negative attention and, and a lot of conservative press like Fox News jumped on it mm-hmm. to sort of basically right. make it seem like solar was a, a kind of flaky kind of, you know, right. left-wing dream when in fact it's a it's a reality and as you pointed out uh, it's the fastest growing alternative source of energy out there so what happened to the u.s uh, solar industry since 2010 the percent of panels manufactured in our state has declined significantly and that's been the problem because imports are just plain cheaper the Department of Energy did a study where they think that there's a 30 to 40% difference in price, primarily due to lower labor costs. So there is a real price difference. We can't manufacture solar panels in the United States competitively under current conditions. And that's what the real underlying problem is. How do we build a capacity in the United States to produce solar panels when imports are, are less expensive? But then as you go forward, the supply chain problems, I mean, are highlighting that maybe those, those discounts are not as significant as we thought they were, because if you have to wait an extra six months to get your panels, then maybe that difference in price goes away. Now, the other thing that people have been thinking about is that if, in fact, we started to invest in solar panel production in the United States, we could get the price down, you know, through building larger factories, efficiencies, and then reduce shipping costs. And then... One thing that's driving this interest, though, in the Build Back Better bill that you mentioned earlier, there are provisions in there to do two tax credits. One is to extend the investment tax credit, and the other is the um, the production tax, tax credit. Both of those provide essentially subsidies to manufacturers to allow them to produce and ramp up solar panel production in the United States. That's the real key. How do we develop? that production and not be totally dependent on a few countries for what I see as an essential component of us moving to a clean energy environment. And again, I'm speaking with Mark Wolf, who's an energy economist who serves as the executive director of the National Energy Assistance Directors Association, representing the state directors of the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. He specializes in energy, climate, housing, and related consumer finance issues and has an article at CNN. The U.S. solar panel industry is on the verge of collapsing. Here's how to prevent it. But Bill Backblader is going nowhere, thanks to Joe Manchin. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. he's in the coal business. It's his family business. And he <laughs> obviously has no interest in yeah. alternative energy and doing everything he can to stymie it. So that's a non-starter. So specifically, though, given that 80% of the solar panels are imported right. now come from these four countries... Vietnam, Cambodia, Malaysia, and Thailand. Um, What can be done then? I mean, how important is it for this 
suit before the Commerce Department brought by a California manufacturer to punish uh, them because they're using Chinese components that should be subject to tariffs. It seems like we're shooting ourselves in the foot there, aren't we? Right. If we're well, suddenly going to be, be a cut-off of right. panels, they won't be available, and then you've got all the delays in shipping, etc., because of supply chain problems. So I'm not sure who's, which side, uh, <laughs> whose side we're on here in this case. Right. Well, first, it's not clear that the charge of the case um, by Axum will prevail. It's possible commerce will feel will will find that the data is not sufficient, and that in fact China is not evading our tariffs by selling through those four countries. So that's one possibility. It's not clear that's going to prevail, but we won't know for a while. These cases take on a life of their own, and that that's part of the concern. And there's nothing wrong with importing from Cambodia or Vietnam. What, what the real problem is, is that we have so undermined domestic manufacturing. This is one example. We've become dependent on a component that's essential for our transition to clean energy on other countries. Now, what there is discussion in the Congress is to split off the energy and environmental provisions or the climate provisions that are in Build Back Better. Because Build Back Better is an enormous bill. It has social service programs. There are lots and lots of things in it. And Joe Manchin has said repeatedly he's open to the idea. But the clock's ticking. So part of the point of the article is say, look, we have to act. And we have to act now. And these are provisions that have broad-based support. And also in terms of job creation, as solar, the solar industry in the United States expands, there's an enormous number of, of jobs that can be created through these factories to build solar panels. So all I'm saying is that we need to act now. There's still time for, for Congress. And, and if Joe Manchin's serious about, in fact, let's split off the bill. And it sounds like he is. He's talked about it. There's been lots of different quotes. There are ongoing discussions in the Senate. But it all comes to nothing. That's my concern. And it's also possible, you know, again, Sun, Moon, and Stars comes together that commerce will say, well, in fact, Axum's case has no merits. Even if they say it does have merits, they'll just say another tariff will increase the price of solar panels in the United States. So those are the kinds of things that are there, but it adds a lot of uncertainty. Investors don't like to invest into uncertainty. So if you're thinking of um, doing solar installation in the United States, you buy panels today that were manufactured after the case. Uh, went to consideration by commerce, they could be subject to retroactive tariffs, which could completely undermine your business operation. So that's why things are stopping. It's not that they're not willing to sell us panels. It's that we don't know what the final price is going to be because of this case. So let's then go back to Solyndra and figure out what went wrong. Why does Solyndra go wrong? And why is it that U.S. manufacturers can't be competitive? Well, Solyndra, I didn't really follow that closely. But the competitiveness issue here is labor costs. At the end of the day, Chinese labor and labor in Vietnam is just a lot lower than labor costs here. And the Department of Energy estimates that 30 to 40 percent of the price difference is due to labor costs. Now, it doesn't say we should pay our laborers less, but it does suggest we could become more competitive. There are innovation opportunities. There are lower shipping costs. There are lots of advantages the United States has. 
but it all gets back to how do we support our manufacturing capability and how do we build it? Because in fact, that is what happens. A lot of manufacturing have gone offshore. And in the case of solar panels, a lot of it now is dependent on Chinese components. There's just no way around that. And if you tried to boost the U.S. industry, would you still need Chinese components? Or wait, why can't we manufacture these components that the Chinese manufacture? There's no reason we can't manufacture them, but our costs are too high. So the tax credits that are included in Build Back Better, and that people have suggested could just be pulled out of Build Back Better along with the other energy efficiency provisions that are in the bill as just a separate standalone bill, that would make an enormous difference. I mean, there's one company that's already announced that they're willing to go forward if the tax credits pass. So that's something I've been keeping an eye on. What are companies that could potentially build solar panels in the United States, what are they saying? And what they are saying are things like, if this passes, we'll go forward. Because they need some certainty that they can cover their costs. And be competitive, there's no reason we can't have a mix of sources, because that also, you know, strengthens the market. But right now, we're almost completely dependent on outside sources for solar panels. And that puts our ability to transition to clean energy at risk. At the same time, we still subsidize fossil fuel. Uh, we do we, we definitely do. Um, and, but that's the other thing that's highlighted. Our dependence on fossil fuels, I mean, look forward into the future. There is significant movement towards all electric cars. Electric cars need to be plugged in. So if the energy can come from solar or wind, you know, another renewable source, that will also play to making the environment cleaner. Because there's not really no point in plugging an electric car and the energy coming from coal and natural gas. That makes no sense. You want to have a clean uh, chain of sources for, for energy. And that's, that, that's why this is so important. Because the growth of solar and wind, the other you know, major renewable energy source, will help us power forward into the future. And that will reduce our, our dependence on fossil fuel. I mean, Europeans are looking at that you know, much more aggressively than we are because they see the point. They see the problem that they've become very dependent on fossil fuels from Russia. And so one way to move away from that is to double down on, on renewable energy. And I think that's what we have to hear because the president, I think, is in a real tough bind. We have the short-term problem that people need to drive to work. They need to heat their homes. They need to run air conditioning in the summer. And right now, it's all that's produced from a mix of natural gas, hydro, coal, nuclear. That is our, our fuel source and also renewable energy. But we need to increase the share of energy from renewable sources, and that will reduce our dependence, as you were saying, on fossil fuels. Because one of the things the energy companies are saying is, look, if you want us to really ramp up natural gas production, oil production, these are multiple-year investments. And so if you're telling us, on the one hand, we want you to ramp up, but that our goal is to put you out of business in five to 10 years. It's a very mixed message. That's why there's a lot of hesitancy in the fossil fuel industry to ramp up production. So we've got a couple of, of complicated pieces all moving at the same time. And it's unfortunate it's happened now and the war in the Ukraine is really highlighting how, how uh, Europe is very dependent on it. And if European prices for oil and natural gas go up, that affects our prices, and that's driving inflation. I mean, there's a lot of factors you can see um, why we need to move away from fossil fuels, which is a whole other story. 
And so the reason I wrote the article was just to point out that solar energy has significant potential to reduce our demand on fossil fuels, but the supply chain for solar energy is weak. It's dependent on outside sources that not only are subject to things like whether or not China is trying to invade our tariff system, but also global supply chain issues that have greatly slowed down delivery of products like fossil, I'm sorry, like solar panels in the United States. So just in the last couple of minutes, I'm trying to get a handle on what seems like a contradiction, uh, Mark, where you say that solar is, is the fastest growing and the cost of solar energy is going down, down, down. So at the same time, you have this possibility that the whole business could collapse because of the dependence upon foreign sources for solar panels. So could you explain that apparent disconnect? Well, not so much collapse. I think that's maybe harsh in the sense it's more that prices will go up. So that if commerce finds in favor of the company that uh, set those charges, then they'll add tariffs and the price of imported solar panels will be more expensive, reducing their competitiveness. That's the real concern. And right now, the, the short-term collapse is that companies are saying, look, if we buy solar panels and commerce finds in favor of Axum, then those panels could be subject to retroactive tariffs that make all the investments we've made prior, no, I'm sorry, all the investments we made right after the case was started uneconomic. So that's the real concern there, that prices could go up. It would make solar less attractive as an investment. So that then the solution is to find ways to make American manufactured uh, solar panels cheaper. And mm -hmm. your argument is that this is going to require government investment, right, and tax credits. Yeah. I mean, they, they're doing the same thing for electric cars. You get subsidies, right. so why not get right. subsidies? And do you believe that if, if you could make a robust American manufactured mm -hmm. solar panel industry and it could get more efficient, that its prices could be ultimately competitive? Is that your argument? I think so, because also there, there are lower shipping costs, but it will take time. It takes time to build factories. It's also a long-term solution. It's taking a, a longer-term view. Right now, this is very short-term. We're dependent on outside sources for solar panels that can be subject to additional uh, tariffs. This is recognizing that this has long-term potential to help meet national climate goals, and we should be investing for the future. And that's what these tax credits are all about. And they have, as I said, very significant congressional support. It's just that the debate over the Build Back Better bill, unfortunately, has fallen apart largely, as you said, you know, because of Joe Manchin's opposition in the Senate. But I don't think it's dead yet. I don't think the provisions are dead. I think it's quite possible that Senator Manchin with the rest of the Democratic Party could still agree on a separate energy environmental bill that could go back to the House, and hopefully the House would then agree to that as well. So my sense is that it's not over yet. I'm still, you know, maybe not optimistic. I'm still hopeful that we'll find a solution because this all becomes part of the long-term vision of addressing climate change. And solar installations are a key part of that. And this is one way to strengthen those installations and the ability to manufacture components going forward.
Well, Mark Wolf, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for inviting me. And again, I've been speaking with Mark Wolf, who's an energy economist who serves as the executive director of the National Energy Assistance Directors Association, representing the state directors of the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. He specializes in energy, climate, housing, and related consumer finance issues, and has an article at CNN, The U.S. Solar Panel Industry is on the Verge of Collapsing. Here's how to prevent it. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past